Well, I mean, definitely what I said earlier of really looking at what already exists in your community and like, not just like, oh, well, I've never heard of someone doing this. It's like, no, you really need to like dig in there. Most cities have nonprofit councils of some sort, or, um, like really dig in and see who is at least serving the demographic of people that you want to serve. Um, and what are they already doing with them? And can you partner with them on adding something to those services? Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time with us to chat. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Costanza Raider. And uh, Costanza grew up in a musical family. So when she was about 13 years old, she also had leukemia and uh, figured out that uh, arts was a important tool for her to cope with the illness. And uh, during that, or uh, uh, later on, uh, also had a, an opportunity to move from California to Texas and uh, study music and psychology in uh, college. After graduating, went to uh, do musical theater as an actress and was a music instructor for a while. And uh, during that, uh, volunteered as an oncology unit in the hospital, and there weren't a lot of activities for adults in the oncology unit, um, and the Peter saw that the patients were suffering needlessly, um, decided to uh, sign up for patients to lift them up, started a nonprofit, and uh, saw an opportunity for artists to uh, to share their, their different things and help with those uh, units. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, that's, that's my story. I think I'm done. We're good. <laughs> hey, that's, it's, it's always a good, uh, it's always good to get a nutshell. Now we're going to go unpack it. So I just condensed a much longer journey into about 30 or 40 seconds. I, that was pretty impressive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I do what I can. So with that, let's go back a bit in time to uh, where your journey started, which was uh, growing up in uh, a musical family and also having to deal with at a younger age with leukemia and how, uh, how that uh, got your journey going. Yeah, I, um, yeah, my mom was really musical. She was a singer and we did, um, performances and shows with different groups as a family growing up. That was a big part of our, of my childhood and we had a piano and, you know, from a, like, I don't know, barely able to stand up. I was pulling myself up and, and playing on the piano in our home and, um, uh, I little did I know that that was going to be kind of what I did the rest of my life and would also be the thing that would, um, heal me later on when, as we were, um, as I faced challenges throughout my life. So, uh, so yeah, I, so yeah, grew up in a musical family in California, was diagnosed with leukemia at 13. Um, I had 130 weeks of chemotherapy. Um, so most of my high school time was, was dealing with, with cancer. And, um, I was fortunate in a lot of ways, like you mentioned in the introduction, because I had access to the arts when I would go in to the clinic for infusions, when I was admitted to the hospital, there was always someone coming by trying to like cheer me up or do, um, coloring pages with me or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it was. Um, there's so many resources actually that get thrown, um, at supportive services for, um, 
pediatric oncology patients, which as it should be like, that's, it's a, it's a really challenging thing for patients and their families to go through. But when I graduated, um, from college and I should let you know, I have been cancer-free, um, since 2002. So almost, almost 20 years. Whoa. It's, (laughs) it's a long time. Um, I, uh, um, uh, went on to study music and psychology in school, like you said, and in San Antonio, I started volunteering on an adult oncology unit and saw that there, it was very different than the environment that I had, that I was in when I was treated. Um, and a lot of the patients that I worked with weren't much older than I was when I finished treatment and yet they were alone for long stretches of time. Whereas I was never alone when I was in the hospital. Um, but I mean, if you think about it, especially young adults, like they, um, are often have like young families. And so someone has to stay home to take care of the kids or keep working so that you can still have insurance and all those issues. Um, so yeah, a lot of the patients lived in the hospital for weeks and months at a time and the boredom, anxiety, depression, isolation was, it's deadly in a place like that. And if it's not addressed, um, patient outcomes suffer. That's, um, well established in the research that, um, that these psychosocial issues impact our body's ability to heal. It influences the rate that tumors and cancers grow in our bodies actually. Um, and yet we, we're still really lagging in supportive services, especially for the adult population, which is the vast majority of people that are in hospitals, um, are adults. And, uh, so yeah, started singing for patients and it just that little bit of bringing that little bit of beauty and human connection into a place like that is, um, it was just, it was transformative and incredibly powerful. And my patients usually cry, (laughs) um, good tears, you know, uh, and just begged for more and they wanted things that I didn't know how to do. And so I, I started, um, my nonprofit, so that we could now let me just jump in because nonprofit because you were at the time if I remember right in in our conversation so backing up the journey just a bit so you got the degree in music psychology but before you kind of started the nonprofit you were also worked as a actress for a period of time or musical theater actress Mm -hmm. and went to music instructor so help us understand a bit of that journey was this you know did you start volunteering while you were doing those or did you do those first for a while and then start volunteering or kind of what was that portion of the journey? Yeah, that's always a tricky thing. How do you go from your day job to your dream job, right? When you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, right. So yeah, I, uh, and not that the work I did previous wasn't fun and I loved it. Uh, yeah, I, um, I did a, a lot of performance um, after college and started a voice studio, which is my like other love. I just absolutely love, um, when people come into my studio, especially those that have been told that they can't sing or because that they have some sort of wounding around their voice and around their creativity, um, and to create safe space for them to explore and learn and build skills and build confidence, um, in their voices. When you, when you change the voice, you, you affect the whole person. When you free up the voice, you free up the whole person. And it's, it's 
it's addicting to watch it happen and to get to be a part of that process. So um, I was actively doing all those things for many years while I was volunteering. And initially I was volunteering very occasionally, and I would bring castmates in to do little performances on the units. And um, I would bring friends to come and, you know, play and sing with me. Um, And that was really fun. But as it went on, I just really felt this strong sense that this is really what I want to do with my life. This is my favorite place to perform. Like, I don't like on stage is great. And I love the camaraderie of, of theater. It's, it's such a, that's its own healing process to, um, to do theater and be part of performing groups like that. Um, but the level of fulfillment and impact that I saw through the work in the hospital was, there was just no comparison to it. So, um, so yeah, I was, was doing both for a long period of time and slowly <laughs> did more and now, more and more. And how long, when you say long period of time, was this a space over one year, five years, 20 years, you know, how long was you kind of doing the volunteering on the side, doing it as kind of a, Hey, I want to get back or want to, you know, I've been yeah. through this experience and I want to help others. How long was that period of time where you're kind of volunteering as you were working the, the full-time day job? I started volunteering in 2009 and I started my organization in 2016. So there was a good chunk of time. And some of that too, was the, the emotional hurdles that I had to overcome because when I would go into the hospital, it would re it would trigger some of my own trauma that wasn't fully resolved yet. And I, I would sometimes call my mom on the way to the hospital like crying, like on the edge of a panic attack. And she's like, just breathe. Like she'd talk me through it because <laughs> she knew that I, I really wanted to be there and it was making an impact. Um, uh, but it was still really hard. So I couldn't do it as often as I wanted to, even with the other job. Um, there was some emotional stuff I had to get through first. And so I had a, um, really lovely, uh, mental breakdown in 2012, <laughs> <laughs> which, um, it's actually pretty common in survivors about 10 years out. There's sometimes there's often this resurgence of, uh, our, uh, re this emergence of all this, um, trauma that's kind of locked in implicit memories that kind of bubbles to the surface. And then it's like, okay, you're in a safe place now. Now you get to deal with all of this, all this junk. Uh, so got some really great therapy. And as I got through that, I really felt the, like, okay, I'm free from all of that. Now I can really be present and serve in this way that I want to serve. Um, so, yeah. No, I think that uh, definitely makes sense now. So as you're doing that, so you're working a full-time day job, you did the volunteering. It sounds like, you know, from about 2009 to 2016, you're basically working as an actress and you're working and in, in coaching others and helping them and uh, doing uh, the, you know, instructions and that. Um, and then it sounds like in putting words in your mouth, so you can correct me where I'm wrong, that 2016, you decided to make the non-for-profit a more full-time endeavor, kind of what was the transition from going part-time, you know, kind of doing this as a volunteer work on the side while supporting yourself to saying, hey, I, this is really where my passion is, this is what I'd like to focus on. And I know I'm asking a compound question, so I apologize. The other part of to that is, what was the kind of the, the trigger to say, hey, I've, I've had enough of this. Or I've had, or I want, not had enough in a bad way, but I really want to make this my full-time focus. And what was kind of what, that trigger that said, okay, now I'm going to make that leap. 
what was the inciting incident um, in my story? Yeah, I, let's start there because that start that was um, a year or so before I started my organization. I um, met this patient, uh, one of our young adult patients, and her name is Gracie. I have permission to tell her story, uh, which I'm very grateful to her husband um, for. Um, and I met Gracie like the day after she was diagnosed with cancer and she was, um, early twenties. She was far from home. She was about three hours away from her hometown. And when I first went into work with her, she was sitting in a ball huddled in a ball in her bed and just really flat affect. And I went in and introduced myself and said, Hey, do you want to hear some music? And she's like, well, I'm not really like an artsy person. I don't even really listen to music. So, you know, maybe not today. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, we never, we're never mad when people say no, it's the no is part of, as part of the, um, therapeutic aspect of it. It's, it all centers around giving patients choice. And that's something that she could say no to that day. But then before I left, she stopped me and she's like, well, actually, um, actually, if you know a Christian song, I feel like I could really, I really need to hear that right now. Um, and so I sang, um, I don't know if you know the old song, uh, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And I That's much better than I've ever seen, so that was awesome. <laughs> so I had to pay me the big bucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> not really. Uh, but yeah, as I sang through the verses of the song, I just watched the tension melt from her body and, and tears come to her eyes. And when I finished, she just looked up and said, thank you. And I actually got to work with Gracie a lot over the months she was in the hospital. She lived in the hospital for six months while she was receiving treatment. She couldn't, um, they couldn't discharge her because of the way her insurance was, they wouldn't be able to readmit her to finish treatment. So they had a keeper in the hospital and she was alone a lot. And, um, I worked, but her favorite day was Wednesday. Cause I would come in. That was my day to come and, um, play music. And we had a group for young adults with cancer on, on the unit on the, at the hospital and we would play music and share stories. And, um, we just had a great time connecting with each other. Um, and she did finally get to, she did find, we did finally get her in remission and she got to go. She finally got to go home. We were super excited for her. Um, but a few, just a few months later, she was back in the hospital because her cancer was back. And this time I, as soon as I found out, I, I went to her room and expecting devastation because this is like the worst nightmare for a survivor. And this time I found her sitting on her bed, smiling. (laughs) I was confused. And she's like, Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're here. I want to show you something. And she pulled me over to her bed and she rolled up her sleeve. And there was a a brand new tattoo of, of a sparrow that she had designed herself that she had gotten as soon as she got out of the hospital. And she said, you know, I'll never forget that first song you sang for me. And I know now that no matter what happens, that he is watching over me. And of course I lost my mind and just (laughs) cried for three days. (laughs) 
like you do. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately they weren't able to get her cancer back in remission, but, um, before she went home on hospice, she called me to her room again and she grabbed my face and she said, we need more we need more art and music. We need more reasons to get out of our rooms and out of our isolation. Cause we need to remember the reasons why we're alive as much as we need the things that keep us alive. Mm. She made it very clear that while she appreciated that I was there once a week, that it wasn't enough. And that there were many patients that would come after her that needed more. Um, and she said, you gotta do something about this. <laughs> and I was like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it had been, it had already been an idea forming for a while, but she really gave me the kick in the pants to say, you, you got to take action now. Um, and so I did, I did the research to like Googled how to start a nonprofit and, um, did a lot of research on other arts and health programs like ours that do bring the arts into hospitals. Uh, like how do people do this and um, all of that. And then started my nonprofit in 2016 and we hired our first visual artist the next month. Well, that's awesome. No, that's a, that's a great story. And uh, certainly is uh, heartwarming, you know, and something that comes out of a, a loss, but uh, also gives you an opportunity to, to serve others and kind of uh, make that the transition of that full-time focus. So yeah. now as, as you've done that, you know, as you put that as more and pay, we're going to do this as a full-time focus and really make it a, the endeavor you're going to do, you know, I don't know a ton about nonprofits. I, I work with some and I know some, but I've never dived into that uh, very deeply, but you know, is that a, you know, generally the model is you have, you're continually going around trying to fundraise, trying to get people to donate and otherwise doing it. And a lot of them tend to not ba- make it very long just because you're having to continually get donors and, and get people that are willing to contribute on a regular basis. So as you're getting that up and going and almost have to focus a bit on the you know, not just the mission, which is definitely important, but also a bit more on kind of the business related side. How did that go for you? Was it something where you're able to get people that saw the vision and really, you know, bought into it and were there supported? Was the hospitals on board? Kind of how did all of that go for you? That's a great question. Cause it is, there's not really, I think a straight line of, um, or like template that really any nonprofit founder necessarily follows like each kind of takes their own path to um get to stability like what's kind of the goal is to um have stability so that you can c- continue to execute your mission in perpetuity that it's not just this like one time thing cuz a lot of nonprofits do fail within the first um 3 to 5 years mm-hmm. uh so i um you, the second part of the question you asked previously was that transition between my other job and then the work I do now. And the first three years of the organization, I didn't take a salary. I employed, um, artists and cause you know, it's a core part of our values is providing, um, economic opportunities for, for creatives. Cause they're generally underemployed. Um, and this is, it takes very skilled artists to do this work. And so they should be paid for the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also an issue of equity too, because if you only, if your nonprofit is only run by volunteers, then only people that can afford to volunteer can be part of the mission. And that won't necessarily be a group of people that have reflects the diversity of the people that you're serving. 
Um, so we have people, we have artists on our team that wouldn't be able to, they couldn't afford to volunteer, but they're some of our most valuable, um, artists because they, they can connect with a demographic of people that we serve that, um, that I might not be able to connect with or someone else. That's just like a little side piece. A lot of people think nonprofits like, oh, like it's all volunteer. No one's making money. And yes, volunteer work is an important piece of nonprofits. I don't want to totally negate volunteering. Um, but for anyway, for this type of work, it's really important to, to pay our artists. So that was the priority. And I, in, in nonprofits, a lot of nonprofit founders, um, well, let me back up. If you are a person thinking of starting a nonprofit, please, um, don't <laughs> until you really search and make sure there's no one else in your area that is doing is serving the people that you want to serve or is doing something related. Cause you can, you can, it's much easier to partner with an existing nonprofit to, to fill a need that you see in your community or to aug and augment what someone's doing, because it's a big drain on resources to create, um, a separate nonprofit. I ended up deciding to start a nonprofit because there wasn't anyone in my community that was doing what I knew needed to be done. Um, and a nonprofit founders generally are on the founding board as well. And when you're a board member, you can't be paid or it's not best, not good practice to be a paid staff member and the board because the board employs the executive director essentially. So you, you would be your own boss and you're, you're not getting those checks and balances. So I didn't take a, um, any salary for the first three years. So I was still teaching. Um, uh, I, and each year I slowly, knocked off a few of my students as my workload increased. But the only reason I was able to do that is because of my husband. And I do want to acknowledge him and the the fact that like, I went to him and I was like, I'm not, I'm quitting my job or I'm like cutting down on students. And he's like, yeah, do it. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Like we can make this work and, um, go for it. So, um, our, the organization wouldn't exist without him. And he was our first and largest donor was my husband because <laughs> he let me donate huge chunks of my time and my, um, my economic potential, if you will. Um, but eventually we were able to transition into, you know, recruiting enough board members. So I could exit the board and could start, um, drawing a, sal- a salary and, um, and devote more of my time to, um, to the nonprofit. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's a lot of people are like, oh, I want to get paid to do, I want to start a nonprofit so I can get paid to do this work that I want to do. And it's going to be a long road if, if that's your goal. Um, and anyway, so I, there's a lot to unpack in this topic. (laughs) Well, there's so many directions you can go, but I will say the thing that gave me an, gave me an advantage is, um, my aunt happens to be one of the top persuasive communication experts in the world. And I got, I learned from her, um, how to, how to do that, how to weave in storytelling and, and create persuasive presentation so that we were able to build our donor base a lot quicker than, um, we would have otherwise. Um, cause I could explain to people in a way that connected with them. Um, so they could see what we were trying to do and they could see the part that they, could play in, in achieving this, this vision that I had. So. No, that's definitely an awesome journey. And sounds like, you know, as with, I think a lot to do with whether it's nonprofit or, uh, or, you know, a startup or a for-profit business, you're going to have a lot of the same things of 
making a sustainable model something that people are willing to purchase or you know donate or contribute to and figuring out how to do that is, is definitely always a journey and sounds like uh, certainly no exception here so we could go on and uh, i'm sure for a lot more and it'd be fun to have you maybe come back on in the future and uh, talk a little bit more specifically about nonprofits and uh, some of the, the thoughts and the pointers and people if they're looking to get into that so we'll have to have you back on um, there at some point but as we uh, do wrap up this episode always ask two questions at the end of each uh, end, end of each podcast we'll go ahead and jump to those now so the first question i always ask is along your journey what was the worst business decision you ever made and what'd you learn from it <laughs> um so this this um the answer to this actually involves ip so i feel like this is perfect for your podcast um it ended up being okay well this whole story so there was did you watch um series of unfortunate no no wait that's on it um oh my gosh what is the name of that show that was on netflix um with count olaf and the children do you know what i'm talking about i do like series of unfortunate events right series of unfortunate events i think that's the right name okay i i I did get it right (laughs) in one of the episodes um a few years a few years ago when it was first coming out there's an episode of where they show people going into the hospital is like singing and like trying to cheer up patients. And it's just this parody on the work that we do. And it was so funny. And I sent it to, on, and it, it was intended to be kind of disparaging about that, but I thought it was hilarious. So I sent it to my team and they're like, this is amazing. We should try to do this art, like do our own version of this. And so we, um, we uh, started making, putting together a script and we found a photographer, like a videographer and we were getting into it and we were um, recording it and on location at the hospital. Anyway, this whole thing. And then we were like halfway through it and we're like, you know, I don't think what we're doing is enough parody to <laughs> to consider this fair use. And um we're going to have to scrap this whole project because mm-hmm. it's, we're just recreating what they did. Um, and like, maybe it would have been okay, but you know, we're an arts organization. That's a bad look. Ripping <laughs> off, other, Giving the appearance that you're ripping off other people's art might be a bit, bit of a problem. Right. Right. So we sunk a lot of time into that project before we stopped it. Um, but we ended up having this whole blooper reel that we played for our staff um, at the Christmas party that year. And so we all had a really great laugh about that, that blooper. It was a blooper reel of, of a blooper. It was fun. <laughs> well, there you go. That is a good mistake. You know, it's one where I, I get, because that is a fine line to walk between parody and what's fair use and what's not. And then you're, you pile on top of that you are an arts organization where it's going to come off looking even worse for you if you right. don't do it right. And so definitely is one that makes sense <laughs> as to how you go down that road and how you might uh, uh, make that mistake. But the, the definitely fun to hear. We the got second, our, our oh, excitement go ahead. got ahead of us. But yeah, <laughs> go ahead. I understand. So no, I was going to jump to now the, the second question I always ask, which is, if you're talking to somebody that's uh, just getting into a startup or small business, and maybe we'll shift the question just a little bit to say a nonprofit startup or small business, um, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Mm. Well, I mean, definitely what I said earlier of really looking at what already exists in your community and like, not just like, oh, well, I've never heard of someone doing this. It's like, no, you really need to like dig in there, most cities have nonprofit councils of some sort or, um, 
like really dig in and see who is at least serving the demographic of people that you want to serve. Um, and what are they already doing with them? And can you partner with them on adding something to those services? Mm. Um, so that's the first one. We have too many nonprofits, um, and it lessens the effectiveness of, of the sector in general at attacking some of the world's biggest problems that we're trying to address as an industry. Um, and second, I would say a lot of people come to service work because they're trying to fix something in themselves where I need, and, and that was, you know, part of my journey too, of starting with, okay, this is something that I had and I needed and people I knew needed. And so there's, there's a piece of me that needed to get healed in the process. And that was a really important process of stepping over, like doing something for myself versus really looking clearly at the person I say I'm trying to serve and at, and asking brutal questions. Am I actually accomplishing the goal that I say I want? Cause, um, and I experienced this a lot as a, as a, as a kid, there were so many people that wanted to help me that needed to help me. They needed me to respond in a particular way so that they felt validated for doing something good or, or whatever it is. And me as the recipient did not feel, um, that didn't feel good. Right. Cause that's putting extra burden on me when I'm already in a vulnerable, tough place. So you got to do the, the tough inner heart work and, and ask yourself, why do I want to serve? And that, and that place of, um, that place is often a starting point for something good, but you got to clear out, you got to clear out your own ego stuff so that, and get those needs met elsewhere. So you're not overburdening the people that you're trying to serve with your own stuff. No, and I think that's a great takeaway. And it, it sounds like, you know, not an area I'm as, as, as familiar with as far as doing it myself, but it, it certainly seems like, you know, a lot of times when you're going to go through the passion of doing a, a nonprofit and, uh, and doing something that is a much more of a kind of a, in a giving in nature, you're going to have to make or find that balance so that it doesn't get overwhelmed uh, with other, those, those additional things. So I think well, that's definitely a great takeaway. And just real quick for small businesses too, I think sometimes we get, as an entrepreneurs, we get attached to certain ideas um, and lose sight of, because entrepreneurship is service too. We're finding needs and uh, trying to address needs, but sometimes we get attached to address, attached to our own ideas or how we think something should go or look or should look when we're, and we stop, we lose focus of, of who we're trying to serve. And, and then we're frustrated because they don't get it or whatever the reason is, you know, how can we, how can we as entrepreneurs, um, really connect empathetically with people we're trying to serve, um, so that we are addressing real needs. No, I, I think that's a, definitely a great takeaway and good advice. So now as we uh, wrap up the, the episode, um, if people want to reach out to you, they want to connect up with you, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to donate, they want to be an investor, they want to be an employee, they want to be an artist that works for you, or they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, or find out more? Sure. Well, I highly recommend going to our website, heartsmeadart.org. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about this field of arts and health and how the arts 
impact our health and why, like what is the mechanisms behind that? Um, check out our, our podcast. It's called arts for the health of it. And it's on all the podcast platforms and you can learn more from researchers and, um, artists and all the amazing people that we get to talk to. Um, also on our website, you can, um, you can browse our artists that we employ and actually you can choose one to support. So if you find one that connects with you, um, that you want to support on a monthly basis, uh, then you get, um, monthly messages of stories of impact that they made in the hospital because of your gift. And it's a really cool way to kind of stay connected to this mission and to support, to support this mission. And now that we're serving virtually, in addition to in-person, our resources are available um, for any caregivers or patients out there, survivors um, that you can access on our website, um, click on the virtual resources, and you can actually make appointments directly with our artists. Um, and there's no experience necessary. We just, we we're there to have a good time and hold space with you as you explore your expressive and creative voice. Awesome. Well, I think that's definitely some great resources. Definitely encourage people to connect up and whether it's donate, whether it's uh, you or share their uh, talents or any other way, definitely a, a great uh, mission and a great thing to, to support. So with that, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun, it's been a pleasure. Um, now, for all of you, the listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. So just feel free to go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. Um, also, as a listener, make sure to click subscribe, share, review, because we want to make sure that everybody finds out about all of these awesome episodes. And last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else with your business, just go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time with us to chat. Well, thank you again, uh, Costanza, for coming on the uh, podcast and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you for having me.